This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Malden, your host, and I'm here today with a special guest, Sean Casey. Sean Casey was Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the U.S. Department of State and Director of the Office of Religion and Global Affairs from 2013 to 2017. He has taught at Harvard Divinity School, Wesley Theological Seminary, and the Walsh School of Foreign Service, and directed the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be with you. The reason we're talking today is because you've just put out this recent book, which I've been reading uh, with great interest, Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom, The Future of Religion in American Diplomacy with a forward by John Kerry. Maybe let's talk about the book itself. It's it's a kind of memoir of your time in the State Department. It's also a memoir of your early life and how that period in your life influenced the later work you would do. Uh, and it's also a memoir of those those important years in the State Department. Talk a bit about the book and uh, what led you to write it. Well, as you know, in uh, January of 2017, uh, a new set of actors moved into the State Department in White House and uh, uh, the powers that be decided they no longer needed my services. And uh, and they very quickly dispensed with the office and with my position and they absorbed about five of my uh billets or FTEs into the Office of International Religious Freedom. We had a staff of about 35 at the end. Um, and I I certainly thought the office was going to continue. I, I thought Hillary was going to win. And, and obviously, uh, we, we were quite wrong about that. And I, I, there was a fair amount of frustration and trauma. You, you work for almost four years to build something that you're proud of, that is innovative in not exactly the most innovative cutting edge part of the federal bureaucracy. And for years, people have been asking uh, for the State Department to open up some kind of office on on religious affairs and and adopt a more uh, sophisticated approach. And Kerry, John Kerry had asked me to come in. So there was a lot of pain, frankly, a lot of shock that uh, you take four years probably if you pick the four years, your four best years of your uh, vocational life, and then somebody pulls the plug on it and erases it, uh, you're left sort of reeling. And uh, so I began thinking about writing a book almost from the moment uh, after the election in, in 2016, because I, I was pretty sure that this is what Trump was going to do with our office. And uh, perhaps later on, we can talk about his approach to, to religion during his administration. But I felt like a, I wanted to set the record straight. Uh, there were some academics and some other folks, journalists, who were beginning to give hot takes on what we were about, and they were almost uniformly wrong. And I thought, if the record's going to have a chance to, to be corrected, I'm really the, the person to write that, because it was my really my conception and um, the office that I, I built uh, alongside several other people. But I felt like some of the trend lines looked bad from both right and left. People were misinterpreting what we what we were about. And I thought we um, we had convinced the, the powers that be, sort of the hearts and minds inside the State Department, that this kind of work was really good the way we had conceived it. But I, I always resonate with an aphorism my mentor, Brian Hare, said. He once wrote quite famously that doing this kind of work, uh, you know, governments uh, becoming involved in uh, assessing religious dynamics was akin to brain surgery. It might be needed but it could be fatal if not done well. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so I felt like we had done it well. I was fearful that the Trump administration was going to do it poorly. And so I wanted to leave behind, if you will, an owner's manual for any future administration that, that tries to do this kind of work about what to do, what not to do. Um, and so it, it was sort of self-evident to me. I needed to do this. I needed to write the book because nobody else was going to be able to do it. Maybe speak a bit about the office itself and how it came came to be. I know that included your own involvement in Washington, D.C. and a, a array of, of uh, areas you're working in the Obama campaign in 2008 and so on and so forth. And you could also talk about how you were at the time a professor of theology and ethics at Wesley Theological Seminary, which is in D.C., which obviously made it easier for you to get involved in, in politics. Well, it's kind of a long meandering story that only makes sense in retrospect, but at the time it looked pretty strange. Uh, yeah, I, I have an autobiographical chapter where I talk about my upbringing in a, a very politically aware, but also religiously devout family, conservative Protestant family. And, and so I've always been struck with the question of what are, what are the political implications in, in starting out at least for, for Christian life and Christian discipleship. Now that broadened to a more global perspective, but certainly that that's how it was first presented to me. Uh, studied Harvard Divinity School and studied with some of the, the brightest minds of our era about these questions at the intersection of religion and, and civil life. Um, when it came time to, to look for jobs, I, I landed uh, this job, as you mentioned, at Wesley Seminary, and I ran for 13 years a unique seminar card called the uh, National Capital Semester for Seminarians, which was a, a theology and public policy seminar that, that was really open to any divinity school or seminary student in America. So I, I ran this seminar for 13 years. And literally, I got to teach what I was trained to do. And I got to do it in Washington, D.C., which was just absolutely a, a dream come true. And through a long, strange series of events, I got to meet uh, John Kerry soon after he lost the 2004 presidential election. And this is when I was writing my book, on the 1960 presidential election, Kennedy versus Nixon on, on the role of religion in that race, which I argue there, that was the beginning of the weaponization of presidential politics, at least in the modern presidential era. So this is one of my research areas. The, I wrote a dissertation under Brian Hare at Harvard uh, on a, a diplomatic uh, issue, uh, nuclear non-proliferation. So those are sort of the twin areas of my, my, my very granular uh, research. But I met Kerry, and in 2005, I helped him write some speeches. I helped him rethink his approach to his own faith in public life. Uh, uh, he gave a speech at Pepperdine University in 2005, and you can Google that and find the text. And I, I helped shape that speech where he began to talk more explicitly about how his own Catholicism shaped his political philosophy. And then he talked about a handful of political issues he took as a result of that, that configuration. And then lo and behold, you fast forward eight years to 2013 and he becomes secretary of state. And as the story was told to me, when you first become secretary of state, an army of attorneys run at you telling you, Madam Secretary, Mr. Secretary, here are 20 things you can never do. Forget about them, put them away. And here, here are 10 things you can do in the long term. But maybe here are 15 things you can do today with the stroke of a pen. And in the middle of that list was the fact that he had the legal authority to launch an office on religious analysis and going back to the 2009, February 2009 executive order that Obama signed gave the, the Secretary of State the authority to launch such an office. And for whatever reason, Hillary Clinton never did it. Uh, so when he, the briefer told Kerry this, he interrupted him, he stopped him 
And he turned to David Wade, who was his chief of staff at state, who had also been a chief of staff in the Senate, who I had known also from 2005. And he said, call Sean and twist his arm, see if you can get him to come in and launch this office. And it, you know, it took a good, robust 10 seconds for them to convince me to, to take this job. Um, and so suddenly there I was. Um, and, and it was his intuition that U.S. diplomacy had missed many, many opportunities over the years because of its willful ignorance or its inept uh, knowledge of religious dynamics. And he wanted me to build an office to address that intuition. And he gave me basically a, a, a blank sheet of paper and said, you write it, I'll, I'll endorse it. And so it was with his, really his blessing, if you will, and, and his sustenance that uh, we were able to, to launch this office and, and really do remarkable things. Now, other people like Madeleine Albright in 2006 had written her book, The Mighty and the Almighty, essentially saying, I wish I'd had some religion advisors because in, in my four years as secretary, religion was everywhere and I had nobody to call inside the building. So people had been, been rumbling for this uh, for over a decade. Something you said earlier was very interesting to me and it's relevant to our work at CTI. Uh, you talk in the book and you mentioned it earlier, how there was some criticism from academics in religion for, for a variety of, of aspects. But one of the things, uh, the way I would read that and the way I read it in your book is academics are not always all that excited about the attempt to engage with the broader public with understandings of religion. Maybe speak a bit of that because that's something CTI is interested in is how to have a broader reach to not only be speaking to other academics with our studies of theology and religion, but to also speak to governments, to nonprofits, to policymakers, and to, to citizens. So I think there, there's several threads into this conversation. On, on the one hand, you have what I call the Vietnam effect. Uh, there was this famous moment back in the, in the early 70s where a group of Harvard uh, senior professors went and met with Henry Kissinger and said, based on your atrocious immoral policies, Harvard professors will no longer be consulting with your entire administration. And, and I think that the, the effects of bad policy at the hands of bad administrations really has soured a number, particularly progressive politicians saying it, it's just the dirty hands problem is permanent. And so we're just not going to bother. But then it gets a little more militant. Sometimes it's like, I shouldn't bother, but neither should you, nor should any other religious scholar. And it, it can become this kind of totalizing thing. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, religion professors are not rewarded professionally and for tenure promotion. You never, you rarely see a criteria for public scholarship fitting into uh, the tenure and promotion process. So the institutions itself are so conservative sometimes that it has a chilling effect. I, I've met scores of religion professors who would love to engage with the government, but they look around their department, they look around their division, they look around their provost and such, and they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm gonna get penalized for this kind of work. Now within the, the academy itself, I joined the uh, Committee on the Public Understanding uh, of the American Academy of Religion back in the early 2000s, not long after I landed at Wesley. And it always had a Washington meeting, which I thought was great. I didn't have to fly anywhere. I could just take the, the metro. But for the first three years we met, there were these knockdown drag out fights on the committee for the public understanding of religion about whether or not we were supposed to be doing this kind of stuff or not. 
And then by the, by the time you blink twice, the weekend was over and we hadn't actually done any business with respect to promoting the public understanding of religion. And I thought, this is nuts. You know, eventually we were able to change that culture. Now the Committee on the Public Understanding of Religion is one of the most robust venues in the academy. So it, just in my, my short career here, the last 20 years, I think the formal academic academy itself, it's more open to this, but nobody's putting a gun to anybody's head saying, well, you have to go talk to the local religion reporter. And, and certainly in my education, I had engaged professors. I had other professors. I'm not sure it ever had a, a political thought in their lives. And, and that's fine. Uh, but it's when the, the median sort of gets enforced on everybody or the, you know, the opinions of do it or don't do it. Uh, but I think we're in a much different place in the guild today than we were, you know, 23 years ago when I first started. During your your years working in the State Department, did you have an elevator pitch in the sense of when you're speaking to somebody about why theology and religion are relevant for for diplomacy? Uh, I did, but it, it, my wife once told me, said it's a very tall building. You're riding an elevator, <laughs> or a so, slow elevator. Yeah, yeah that's right. The, the question that I think engaged religious scholar, religion scholars for the two or three decades before I came in was, well, why should we do this kind of work? And there was fairly robust scholarly discussion with respect to foreign policy. And, and the short answer is uh, ignoring religious dynamics can be disastrous. In, in the classic case, there is Iraq. And I have a long chapter in the book about how the Bush administration's willful ignorance of religious dynamics just led to cascading tragedies and to the extent of you know millions of people displaced, hundreds of thousands of people dead, tens of thousands of people disabled, and $8 trillion poured down the, the uh, rat hole. So I wanted us to move, and we did very quickly move to the question of how do you do this work? We, we moved as if the why question had been answered. And for John Kerry, it had been answered, and that's all that really mattered for us. So we, we had a threefold mission. We said, first of all, we advised the Secretary of State when religion cuts across the Secretary's portfolio. So unlike Madeleine Albright, John Kerry could pick up the phone and call and say, I want to, want to know more about this. I want to know more about that. And we were there either to give our answer or to find somebody on the outside who gave the best answer we could find. The second mission was to empower and train our embassies and consulates around the world to assess the religious dynamics of their host country and to engage the religious communities that they encountered from the tiny to, to the huge and so we spent a lot of time training embassy staff on how to do this work, how to build a living religious landscape of the various communities from small to large, and, and then how to build relationships um, so that you could interpret the diplomatic implications of their work and, and their, their presence. And then our third mission was to be the point of contact for any external actor, be it a, an individual, be it a foreign gun government, should be it an NGO, should it be a scholar, who would want to come and partner, if not with us, with somebody else in the building who worked on their issues. Maybe speak a bit about the, the the biographical chapter a bit more. I was very interested in how you would respond to the question of how does your own background growing up in Missouri and, and mostly in Kentucky influence how you related to, to folks in the State Department? I really it was enjoyed one passage uh, in the book where you're talking about how in your own family, uh, quote, you say, a deep knowledge of the biblical text, a well-digested daily newspaper, a curiosity about people and the world were similar givens. 
But as you say, you, you had a different background from many of the people you were in, interacting with. And, and how did you see that as an advantage, actually? So it's interesting, the, the old nostrum about the State Department is it's staffed by the pale male in Yale. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I have a large number of graduate degrees from an Eastern institution. And, and so on, at first glance, people can look at me and say, oh, do the old eye roll. Here's, here's yet another guy who comes from a privileged background. Uh, and it, it is true. I mean, I, I went to a, a superb university. I, if, if that's all you see about my resume, then, then maybe I am pale male and, and almost Yale. But what I wanted to say was that's not true. You know, I, I grew up in this tiny, tiny sect, the Churches of Christ, as it was entering into an era of just profound sociological and theological change. And I, I, I sort of rode that wave of change in, in my own family. And I guess my argument was, first, don't judge me because I've got the graduate degrees I do. I wanted to widen the lens a little bit. And the State Department's trying desperately hard to become more diverse. And we made a fair amount of progress in the Obama era. Uh, we backslid during the Trump era. And the Biden folk are, are trying to restore uh, this quest to, to build a State Department that actually represents the, the diversity of the United States. And I wanted to show that I came from a background where very, very few people end up in Foggy Bottom at Maine State, uh, coming from the zip codes that I, I grew up in. And so part of my, the method of my madness there was to encourage uh, students. And, you know, I've been teaching, I taught in the School of Foreign Service for, for four or five years at Georgetown. I wanted to show that cohort that uh, you, you can come from these very obscure backwater out of the way places. And that's not a disadvantage. In, in my case, I think the advantage was that when you grow up in a, in a uh, unusual sort of outside the normal confines of even Christianity, you see things and become attuned to things that would otherwise be missed by people who don't have that background. Now, I don't want to oversell that because uh, you know, I, I do make the uh, sort of the opposite argument about uh, how the Bush era and even the Obama administrations treated a lot of the Muslim world by trying to analogize off of the, the personal experience of white Americans growing up in, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s and how that was mistaken. It was wrong to assume that somehow my angst ridden teenage years should shed any insider light into somebody who goes from, say, London uh, to uh, Baghdad to fight for ISIS. Uh, the too, too many people analogize too deeply off of their personal religious experience and trying to understand a religion that is alien to their own, own, own growing up. But it's not completely useless. If you, you, and so in my case, I think I learned to ask questions based on some of the peculiar theological and sociological moves I saw in the, ch in the church of my origin. I was very interested, too, in the section where you're talking about how you built up the office at the State Department, which took some time. It came it eventually had up to something like 30 staffers. Right. And uh, I was especially interested in where you talk about the the values that you implemented. And I think they were even written down and discussed, right. particularly, I thought, the continue learning value, which I, I remember you talking about years ago, I think, when you were there, when you came to CTI in 2014-15. Right, right. You mentioned then, even then, that you were ha that you would often have brown bag lunches with the staff, reading an article, and I guess my question is, um, how did you keep the momentum on that? That continue learning value, because I can imagine the 
the urgent tasks that all needed to be done, the emails flowing, the event that has to be planned, the this and that, the travel, you're flying here and there. It's very difficult to say, now we're going to sit here and talk about a journal article. Right, right. Well, we 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 tried to focus our, our, our research on the questions at hand. And we, you know, the State Department has its own intelligence office, uh, the intelligence community, let me just leave it at that, has a number of offices that actually research religion, which stunned me when I got inside. In fact, when I first heard that, I was somewhat terrified, <laughs> and only to discover that the, those offices were filled with people with graduate degrees from some of the best religious studies uh, departments around the country. And so on the face of it, I remember the day I was sworn in, and I was the only guy. I was the religion guy at the State Department, and I've never felt a stronger sense of the imposter syndrome than on that day. Then on the face of it, it's preposterous to think that one person can interpret global religion for an entire bureaucracy of 80,000 people. So I knew what I, I knew and I knew what I didn't know. And, and what I didn't know about global religion vastly outweighed what I did know. So I knew we had to build a staff of people who knew lived religion in specific, discrete geographical areas and had to have some historical understanding. They had to have some linguistic uh, uh, skills that I, I certainly never possessed. So between the uh, the 30, 35 we ended up getting, we had like 22 graduate degrees in religion or cognitive field. So we were we were lifelong learners to begin with. That, that came naturally to us. But we then, you know, I, I did a lot of work in the Orthodox world. Uh, now, my, my understanding of the Orthodox world sort of ended uh, with Augustine in terms of you know classical thinkers, but but in terms of the medieval period in, in modern Orthodox thought, I, I done very very little reading, and then we turn to you. You know, you you at CTI put together an all star cast of, of scholars of contemporary Orthodoxy, and I sort of got my reading list, and I had a set of conversation partners that I continue to consult to this day, long after I left the State Department. So I knew, given the complexity of all the spaces we were working in. The history was long, it was deep, and you couldn't do a PhD in a can. Uh, so you, you had to leverage the brain power wherever you could find it. And now there's some people who walk around with the same talking points from you know 1952, which is not sufficient anywhere. Uh, and I swore we were not gonna be one of those offices. So we, we did uh, try to tap a lot of knowledge from, from all around the world. Now, that doesn't mean sometimes you come up with more questions than you have answers when you sit down with a group of scholars or read a, a body of literature about the history of religion in places like Ukraine, for instance. Uh, it, it's a very complicated, long history. Uh, but I was bound and determined to try to do the best we can, given the, the kind of constraints you just mentioned uh, that are on uh, uh, on diplomats, the pressure to get things done in the moment because the, the planet's on fire. Just as a follow-up to that, how has that seminar we held at CTI on orthodoxy, in which ways has that influenced how you've read the the recent, you know, the war, the invasion of Russia and Ukraine in in recent in the past year? Well, I mean, I, I think it's it's a it's obviously a complicated case. I think maybe the top thing to say is that you you read Putin's fever speeches. Uh, fever dream speeches about history and complaint and and why he's invading. There's almost always a, a long section about religion, and it goes back to Vladimir in the 10th century and being baptized in the Dnieper River. And here, this crazy Viking is sort of the father of us all. And it's as if 
Putin thinks he's Peter the Great and he's going to reunite uh, the, the greater ancient Russian world. And I think a lot of Western analysts at the point I was there thought no rational person would invade another country over a controversy about who, who owns the legacy of this uh, 10th century obscure figure. And I kind of raised the question, well, what if we do take him seriously? Why is this always there? And I think it was Timothy Snyder who said, why don't we ever take Putin at his word when he says that this is part of what's animating him? And, and suddenly people began to wonder uh, if the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew ever united the disparate Orthodox churches under his banner in Ukraine, and thus taking away a lot of tre treasure and property from the Russian Orthodox Church, would Putin respond with an invasion of the whole country? And I, I formed that question. And I, now the answer is varied from people saying yes and other people saying, oh, that's, that's crazy talk. But at least I think what we contributed on, on that based on our analysis that started with the conversation we had with, with the folk you brought together was that we at least need to ask that question since Putin consistently raises this as part of his criticism of the West, that it's the decadent West that has somehow dissembled uh, this great Orthodox world. And, and that's part of what uh, Putin is trying to do here with, with his uh, military uh, moves. We should take that seriously. And I, I think that's that's not the sole explanation. I think as Timothy Snyder, I think once said, food is almost always at the heart of why people want to invade and control Ukraine. But I think religion is also uh, one of the many vectors into the, the very bizarre brain of the leader of Russia. And we made, we tried to make sure that people accounted for that in their analysis in the, in the state department and in wider hallways and in the rest mm -hmm. of bureaucracy. At one point in the book, you talk about how you think, the diplomatic corps aspiring diplomats should have a liberal arts education. I wonder if you could reflect on that and perhaps also on how there's a, a sort of crisis of the humanities or the liberal arts at precisely the time that you think it's, it's needed. Well, I, I think a lot of people don't understand what, what embassies are supposed to be doing. You know, maybe, maybe they're there to bail you out if you run out of money or if you lose your passport, you call the people at the embassy and they, they sort of run interference for you. And that's certainly a good part of what they do. But their main function is to interpret what's going on broadly drawn in their host country back to the United States and back to the, to the State Department. And the converse of that is they represent the United States to that host country as well. So to do that, you have to have diplomats who know how to interpret politics, interpret business, interpret the economy, how to interpret history, how to interpret um, civil society. So these people are incredibly adept at going into a culture and trying to understand what's really going on in all of its diversity and all of its historical depth and to interpret America, interpret that back to America and, and introduce America to those people. But when it comes to religion, there's no reward for that. And they literally don't know how to do that because nobody says, well, religion's obviously politically very salient in this host country until shooting starts or until something big breaks out. And then suddenly in the midst of chaos, it's impossible for diplomats to uh, begin to begin building relationships with religious communities. Now, in some countries, religious communities are, are not a factor. And I, I grant that. But in places like Ukraine, if you say religion doesn't count for what's happening in the streets here, you, you're not going to come within a thousand miles of understanding what's going on uh, in the streets or in the uh, sort of inner sanctums of a place like Ukraine. And so it was our argument that you need 
to reward people for that, you need to train them. And in the absence of a State Department-wide mandate, we sort of went door-to-door, embassy-to-embassy, offering the, the services, our services, to show how you do that. Uh, now, I would argue uh, if a person with a liberal arts education at least has some semblance of tools on how to understand politics, how to understand art, how to understand philosophy, how to understand history, and understand religion, frankly, that you, you don't need a CPA leading your political team on the ground because the CPA is not necessarily going to have the liberal arts background to be able to, to interpret a society as a whole. One of the things I also enjoyed about the the biographical chapter is you're talking about the years you spent at Harvard. You went to Harvard Divinity School. You also uh, got a degree from the Kennedy School of Government, as well as your doctoral degree. And you, you mentioned that one of the things you really valued there was re- returning to the sources and reading primary source texts. In that regard, I was very interested in a an endnote. I'm going all the way to the buried in an endnote of your book, uh, <laughs> chapter three, endnote 14. You say, for those who are hoping that I lay out a systematic theological case for why I am drawn to the work of diplomacy, I do not have the space to do that here. As I hint here, I've been influenced by an eclectic cohort of theologians such as Karl Barth, Harvey Cox, Reinhold uh, and H. Richard Niebuhr, Francis Fiorenza, Brian Hare, Margaret Miles, Emily Towns, and Robin Lovin. I guess my question is, what does that look like these days in terms of returning to uh, primary text for your own reading, for your own thinking about about engaging the public from a theological perspective? (laughs) Oh my, how many hours do we have? (laughs) Well, let me start with an observation that from one of my professors, and this is Richard Reinhold Niebuhr. So this is for, for those keeping score, the nerds out there, this is H. Richard Niebuhr's son, Reinhold Niebuhr's nephew. And he, along with a couple of other professors, said, run away from any single label that people want to tattoo on your forehead. Oh, he's a Bartian. Oh, she's a Niebuhrian. That in, in American theology has gone through a, a phase, and maybe less so at this particular moment, of where it, it's it's like the the, the uh, it's like March Madness. There's 64 different teams, and let me you tell me who you're rooting for, right? You're on Team Bart, or you're on Team So and So, and they really pushed pushed us hard not to do that because there was no Harvard School of Theology in that ideological sense, and, and so I, that that was one of the reasons I was reticent to start you know giving people this this huge long theological pedigree. Um, because that it really reflects an inwardly focused discipline. It's more about enforcing orthodoxy and, and slaying bad theology than it is actually theologically engaging the world, which I'm much more interested in. I think today, we're, uh, maybe I can sort of answer your question, but sort of bend the question a little bit. I think as we confront white Christian nationalism as a, as a country today. It's interesting to me, it's the political scientists and it's the social scientists who are offering all the analysis right now in, in the media. And, you know, I, I, I love political scientists. I love social scientists. But what they are ill-equipped to do is to talk theologically. They're not equipped. They don't understand theology. Um, and the theology they're looking at is reductive to begin with. Uh, in these churches where white Christian nationalism is becoming the norm. But if we're going to engage that theological orientation and that theological location, which is in these Protestant, oftentimes non-denominational congregations, we've got to have a facility to go in and talk and understand their vocabulary, but also engage them theologically. 
And that's not happening. I mean, it's happening a little bit here and there. The denominational structures themselves are not doing it much. Seminaries are not doing it much. Uh, now, Robin Lovins just written a fascinating book exactly on this topic. Uh, I would say we need a much more robust engagement by those of us who are theologically trained to be able to uh, engage the engines and sources of this bad theology on theological terms. Because if you, you send a sociologist in and he says, well, you know, 25% of you guys are white Christian nationalists. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to have absolutely no impact, no effect. And the, the tragedy is, is the discipline begins to erode and implode, and the institutions that train theologians are getting into other businesses at precisely the cultural moment we need people who are capable of engaging the leadership and the rank and file of these churches, that generation's gone. It's disappearing. We're, we're, we're aging out and there's nothing in its place. So having said that, I, I'm actually looking at a project now, looking at some interracial work that people like Reinhold Lieber did with Howard Thurman uh, and other uh, black and white theologians starting in the 20s doing anti-racist work and doing uh, anti-nationalism uh, work in a way that I don't think has been undercovered or, or treated sufficiently by religious scholars. And so I'm, I'm trying to do some archival work now to mine in this, uh, in this very unique space where there were some interracial theologians uh, working on these questions and trying to fight back the rising nationalism and racism in the Jim Crow era, the late Jim Crow era. It would seem like Reinhold Niebuhr would be a kind of model for you. I, I kept thinking of Reinhold Niebuhr reading this book. I think he would have been very interested in your work. <laughs> a, a theologian, but a theologian who's very was very interested in in working with governmental leaders, working with people outside the church, um, and seeing how religious ideas might be brought to bear on the broader public. I think that's right. Now, I, I have my theological bones to pick with Niebuhr. I, I think he has to be critically appropriated. And there are parts of his work I'm deeply attracted to. In other parts, I, I have some, some deep criticisms. But you're right. I mean, when I first read Niebuhr with Preston Williams at Harvard Divinity School, uh, back in the last millennium, as my children would say. Um, and, and I was absolutely mesmerized. I mean, coming from, from Abilene, Texas, the age of 22, and the first time I read Niebuhr, I, my, my mind was blown. I, I literally had no categories from which to, to either assess him or to locate him. But I, I was absolutely mesmerized by the notion that looking at uh, foreign policy, looking at international politics was considered to be uh, a primary rubric for, for Christian ethics. I, I, I just was absolutely blown away and uh, deeply attracted to someone who, who wanted to do that. Uh, now, again, I think you get down to the particulars, I, I certainly have, have my differences, but uh, the fact that he made this a legitimate uh, topos for a Christian ethicist to, to engage with really created a, a path for people like me to do the work I've done. One of the things I found interesting in the book was, you know, there's a lot of politics that goes on in politics, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in the this large, huge bureaucracy, and there are other actors who are in kind of semi-overlapping areas, and they may be trying to take over what you're doing, or they're rivals in some way. And we don't need to get into all the nuts and bolts there. But I mean, a couple of things that were interesting is you didn't want the study of religion and diplomacy to be reduced to two other things that had their own offices, one being international religious freedom, and the other being some kind of um, countering religious violence. 
which was a kind of rebirth of the global war on terror language, which you saw as inherently biased against Islam and so on. But maybe speak about that and why you didn't want to uh, fold this understanding under those rubrics. Well, so there are folks, and this is not everybody, but but uh, I would say at one point a majority and, and certainly a high percentage of folks at the State Department who worked in the Office of International Religious Freedom, which was established in 1998, come from conservative Christian backgrounds. And I, I would argue mm-hmm. a lot of the American diplomatic energy in religious freedom has been precisely that, trying to promote uh, the, the safety and the numbers of uh, religious or uh, Christian communities around the world. And that's fine, but that's that's incomplete. Uh, if, if you're going to be for religious freedom, it should be religious freedom for all. And I think some of the conservative uh, fathers and mothers of the American approach have often not embraced that. And they think that that, it, that exhausts the diplomatic need uh, for any kind of religious work. And I, I just disagree with that. I think that the way the legislation is written has religious freedom is a very narrow focus. It produces an annual report and it produces an annual list of bad guys. And the rest of the time they go around the country trying to, to shame the, the bad guys into becoming good guys. And that's fine. But there, there are a lot more politically salient religious dimensions in uh, global politics than just religious freedom. Now, the other one was, was far more problematic, countering violent extremism, which, as you said, was sort of the Obama administration's attempt to, to engage the Muslim world from a security lens. And I did not want us to become uh, the religious part of that strategy. And, and the book does tell several accounts of how we resisted that. As one of my staffers put it, countering violent extremism is a theory-rich, data-poor area. And so the data-poor area was replaced by really bad assumptions about bad Muslims versus good Muslims versus moderate Muslims. And it was highly reductive, and it was not really based on empirical research at the grassroots uh, level. And the policies that that, uh, emerged from that were very unsophisticated and often counterproductive. So we we had to find a way to resist the temptation to get sucked into that, but offer an alternative approach, which which is what we did. Where do you see uh, this work going forward? Well, I, you know, by the time we left, we had a database of, of thousands of people and organizations that, that we partnered with around the world. And, and so there really was global demand for our services, both within the State Department and, and beyond. Now, will this administration restore the office? As I said, the, the Trump folk uh, shut it down pretty quickly in 2017 because they went all in on religious freedom. And frankly, they saw anything in the international religious space as really a campaigning site for domestic American audiences. And that that was certainly not was, was not something we wanted to do. But here we are two years into the Biden administration, and I remain hopeful that they will look at what we did. And now that the book is out, uh, I have thrown several copies of the book into certain people's labs there uh, and to, to exhort them to, to rethink uh, starting this office again. So I, I'm hopeful they'll do that. And one of my main motives for writing the book was sort of seeing this as a, a how-to manual, sort of a memoir slash history of how we did it. And it could be done a million different ways in terms of its bureaucratic shape and, and location. But even as we sit here now, you think about Ethiopia. Ethiopia has a, has a political leader, Abiy Ahmed, uh, who's a member who, who of, a, of a prosperity gospel church. Uh, his political party is the Prosperity Party. 
And uh, the U.S. just recently uh, announced that they think war crimes were committed on all sides of the recent civil war. So if we're going to sort through that and there's going to be any kind of successful reconciliation and sort of restoration political program there, they're going to have to deal with the religious dynamics there between the Orthodox Christians, between the Muslims and this newly emerging uh, prosperity gospel in Africa. Uh, so Ukraine, uh, Ethiopia, China, so, so the places where the religious dynamics include, uh, con, you know, continue to be salient and continue to grow are numerous. And my fear is that uh, our current government is not equipped to understand that religiously complex uh, set of issues uh, in, in a number of places. Well, on that note, Sean, I want to thank you again for coming on the the podcast to talk about your book, Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom, The Future of Religion in American Diplomacy. I highly recommend it. It's very readable. It's not only for scholars. It can be read by anyone with an interest in uh, diplomacy and government and in how religion and politics, religion and the public life uh, relate. So thanks again for the book and for being on the podcast. You're welcome, Josh. It's been my pleasure. Take care.